and I've asked him to shut the fridge door because um, it's a bit cool up here today, cooler than uh, cooler than last time, last week. Um, a woman was uh, was evangelising and uh, was being heckled as she was she was talking, and the, the and uh, the heckler said, "So you believe in the in the Bible?" And she said, "Yes." And he says, "You believe everything that's true in the Bible?" And she said, "Yes." And he said, "What about Jonah?" And he said, "Jonah, you know, supposedly." lived in the belly of a whale for for three days he said how can you believe that it's just it's just all made up and she said well I believe it's in the bible and it's because it's there and uh, we don't know whether he spent three days in the whale or a belly of a fish but he said but she said but one day when I get to heaven I will ask him heaven he goes and what if you don't get to see him in heaven and she said well then you'll get to see him I was reading a, a report put out by a, a group in the US called the Pew Report, and they polled a, a group in America called Religious Nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. And I'll read out a bit of the article here. And this group describes themselves, this is the Religious Nuns, as nothing in particular when they asked if they identify with a specific religious group. The vast majority are ex-Christians, and most under the age of 35. Pew was asked a representative sample of these religious nuns while they rejected any religious affiliation. And most left because they questioned a lot of religious teaching. Some didn't like religious leaders and others said religion was irrelevant to me. And from this information, one might infer that Christians leave their faith because they no longer agree on the teaching of Christ or that they don't like their leaders. But this isn't really why the young people were leaving the church. In an earlier study, which they did in 2016, none of the, none, the nuns said they no longer identified with religious groups because they no longer believed it was true. And when, he, when they asked why they didn't believe, many said their views about God have evolved and some reported a crisis of faith. For examples like, there's no specific evidence of a creator. And I just realised somewhere along the way, I don't believe it. The teaching they question seems to be about the existence of God. And when Christians walk away from their faith, more often than not, it's due to some form of intellectual scepticism. Ex-Christians often describe religious beliefs as innately blind or unreasonable. And their article concludes with, Ex-Christians leave the church because they don't think anyone in the church can answer their questions or make a case. So it's time for believers to responsibly and reasonably to explain what Christianity proposes and why these propositions are true, especially when working with young people who have legitimate questions. They know why young Christians are leaving, but we need to give people a reason to stay. Last week, for those who were here, we shared a passage about Jesus on the way to Emmaus. Would we volunteer to read that out for us, thanks? Luke 24, verses 21 to 27. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself.
So do you ever think about why God had his son, the Messiah, suffer and die? Sometimes we question suffering, and there's much suffering in the world, and the world's question is, often is, if there is a God, why is there so much suffering? But Jesus himself was able to explain that he had to suffer and that he had to die. Do you know why he had to do it? In the book of Genesis, chapter 1, we read, In the beginning, God created. God can create. Nothing that we can do can create. If we look at physics, the first law of thermodynamics says that energy cannot be created or destroyed, only transferred or transformed. In simple terms, it means if you put a block of ice on a table, it will melt. It will return to the temperature of the surrounding areas and it will become a, become a liquid. We haven't, created any, we haven't created the water, it's just changed its shape. So as a man, we cannot create anything. But we believe that energy in itself is a subset of what God has created. Those that are gardeners would know if you have a tomato on a, on a vine and it drops off, the tomato drops off and lands on the ground and rots, decays and gets covered with soil, we expect to see another tomato vine appear and for tomatoes to grow. Unless, of course, it's a genetically modified tomato which is not able to, uh, to germinate. But if it does germinate and the tomato grows, we see a tomato. We don't see a banana, we see a tomato. And this process is repeatable in a lab, in the field, in your own garden. Man cannot create anything, but God did give us the ability to procreate. We can have the joy of procreating a child, and we can care and we can love for that newborn. So just imagine the pleasure that God had when he created man for the first time. What he had aspirations for, for Adam as he was, was created. When we look at creation itself through the, through the macroscopic or the microscopic, macroscopic means when we look out into, into space through the, through the telescopes, we'll look at the microscopic through, through microscopes. There is a structure and then there is an order. We can, by looking at the stars, know where the stars were positioned thousands of years ago. We know when a lunar eclipse is going to arrive, it's a blood moon or solar, we know where the eclipses are going to be. There is structure and there is order. And even when we drill down into the microscopic, there is order. And I haven't memorised this, but in one second, the cesium atom oscillates 9,192,631,770 times in an atomic clock. And that equates to one second is repeatable, it's ongoing, and it's going to be wrong, I think, uh, one second in so many million years. It is accurate. It is designed. Paul writes that God is not hiding any, anything from us and the evidence of creation is all around us. In his letter to the Romans, he says, For Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. The psalmist wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. We read in Genesis, as I said, that everything that God created was good. So why did Jesus need to send his son? 
When a child is born, who normally names the child? Any mum, mum and dad? That's right, the parents. That's because the parents nurture the child, care for the child, are responsible for the child, and while they have names suggested to them by grandparents and relatives and family names, and you should ch call your child this, ultimately it's up to the parents to name their child. In Genesis, God refers to man, who we know as Adam, and Adam names all the animals as God brings them to him. And then we read, God puts Adam to sleep and formed woman from his side. When Adam sees her for the first time, he says, whoa, man. That was a joke. And he, and he names her. We read in Genesis 2, the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And as we know, Eve is deceived by the devil, but yet it had been Adam's responsibility to protect and to instruct Eve. In Genesis 2, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For on that day you eat of it, you, certain, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for, man, for the man to be alone, or make a helper corresponding to him. You note there that God gave the direction to man to say, you are not to eat from this tree. This was before the woman was actually created. It was man, Adam's responsibility to train and instruct his, his helper as to what God, God's plan. He had to say, don't eat of this tree. And after they had eaten of the tree, and God knew that they had eaten, well, eaten of the fruit, I mean, and God knew that they had eaten, God came to man and said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. So God reinforced with Adam and said, I told you that you couldn't eat from that. You sinned, but I told you. Why didn't you do it? Why did you let her eat from it? But even at that moment, and the sin had entered the world, God had a plan, and we read of the serpent whose head who was going to sorry, bruise or strike the heel but of Eve's offspring at some point in time, but Eve's offspring would crush his head. So do you think after why in Adam and Eve sinned, why God didn't start again? Why didn't he just uh, rub everything out and say, well, that Adam one didn't work, let's just uh, wipe it out, no one, will, no one will know? And the reason being is that he couldn't legally do it. If he did, then the contract that he created with the law and that standard which said everything that God created was good would have been false. Sin entered the world and all the offspring and Adam and Eve were of a bloodline that was of sin. All their children were born into sin. We can tell from that that their elder son Cain was conceived after they sinned. Otherwise, Cain would have been born without sin and of a, of a perfect uh, bloodline. But Cain was born into, into sin. It also meant that uh, if they hadn't sinned, or that Eve's first birthing experience would have been pain-free. But why is sin such a big deal? Because sin prevents us from entering into the presence of God 
and it leads us to physical and spiritual death. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, writes, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, God set a cherubim at the entrance to prevent them from re-entering into his holy presence. In Genesis, it says, He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim with flaming and whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. They had sinned. They could no longer eat of the tree of life, but they could never, ever enter directly back into God's presence. As a reminder to the Israelites about the separation from God, the Ark of the Covenant also had two cherubim cast into the, into the lid of the Ark. The temple that was built had cherubim uh, patterns embossed into the, into the curtains. And when Solomon finally built his, uh, his temple for the Lord, there was two cherubim three metres high set before the ark as a reminder to the people that they could not enter back into God's holy presence. God gave the commandments and the laws to Moses. The laws covered how to relate to God, how to relate to their fellow countrymen, and how to relate to foreigners. It outlined the number of sacrifices required for sin. For the wages of sin is death and required the spilling of blood. In Hebrews, we read, According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. While there are sacrifices required for sin, on one day a year, the high priest used to enter the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the Israelites. That day was called the Day of Atonement as part of the Feast of Atonement. And the high priest would take two goats, one which would be sacrificed for Jehovah. The other goat would be led into the wilderness to be cast free. And that was symbolic that the sins of the people were to be cast, cast away and they, and they would not be remembered any longer. So... Regarding sin and justice and all, why did Jesus have to come into the world? There's a scripture, which if you don't mind putting up now, most widely triathlon, anyone like to read that for us please? You should all know it. it's the most widely translated scripture, so they say. Let's go to the next slide. For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish and have eternal life. I get emotional because it's just so, it's personal. It's each of us have the opportunity to accept Christ as our Lord and Saviour and he was sent for us. The reason why he sent his son is God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. So God loved the world. He created it. He gave it to man to look after and have dominion over. He said, this is yours. Adam named the animals, as I said. And man sinned against God and handed the dominion of this world over to Satan. We know this for a couple of reasons. Jesus himself in John said, now is the time for judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, referring to Satan. 
And also when Jesus was tempted, he was, after he was baptised, he was taken out into the wilderness and he was tempted. And one of the temptations, Satan took him to a high mountain and said, I'll give you all this if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, you can worship no other God but God alone. But he didn't, Jesus didn't dispute that Satan could have given it to him. He knew that Satan had dominion over this world, but he also knew that he was to worship God and God only. So if man and Adam, man, sorry, Adam, had given dominion of this world to Satan, how could he legally get it back? How could he break that and change that contract? It's a bit like me giving my son a car and then his, he decides after some pressure to give the car to someone else. I can't go to that other person and say, give, me, give my son back his car because he'd entered into a transaction. He'd, he'd been given, God had given the world to Adam. Adam had given it on to Satan. We read in Isaiah and also in Matthew that the virgin shall give birth to a child. When the fetus is in the womb, the mother's blood and the fetus's blood don't mix. It's potentially fatal for the fetus if that happens. Logic would then determine that in that secure, protected environment inside the mother's womb, that the father's blood type determines the fetus's blood type. Extend that logic a bit further. If it didn't happen that way, then everyone would have the same blood type as their mother because you'd all be part of the same circulation system through the blood. So in that protective area of the womb, Jesus was able to be conceived. The egg of the woman combined with the seed of God formed a little embryo which had a new bloodline. None of the earthly blood from Mary and her and man before that actually passed through Jesus' system. And he had a pure bloodline. And his blood was different. He was different from the, everyone born since Adam. And we know that God created and everything was good. But you also realise that God did not add a womb to Eve after they had sinned. It was part of her biological makeup that it was already there. God had planned. And the angel said to Mary, you shall call him Jesus. Note who named him. It wasn't his earthly parents. They gave him his name Jesus. But he was the son of God and the name came from God. You shall call him Jesus. He is our saviour and our protector. I've got a book that I was flicking through the other day. A person's gone through and identified the 365 names of Jesus as recorded in the, the scripture. So why did Jesus have to die the way that he did? We heard that he was born of a perfect bloodline, a different bloodline to his, to his ancestors. When Jesus was 30, he started his ministry. 30 being the age for the Levitical priests to start. And three years later, he was crucified on the cross. But Jesus knew that he was going to die. He knew the purpose of his life on earth. It had been told through the, through the prophets and Jesus himself was telling his disciples and followers what would happen. That's what he had been discussing with the people on the road to Emmaus. When Jesus was trialled, as you know, he was not found guilty of any crime. He had been pushed between a number of courts, a number of jurisdictions, and Pilate 
famously washed his hands. He said, I can find nothing wrong with this man. But he'd been, by passing through the, all the courts, no one finding him guilty, he had been proven from a human nature that he had done nothing wrong. None of the systems, none of the judicial systems on earth could say that he had done anything wrong. And by the heavenly judicial system, he too was sinless. Yet he was suffered, yet he suffered and crucified. He wasn't run over by a horse. He didn't die of old age. He didn't get married. He didn't have children. He didn't go to the coast to retire. Hypothetically, if Jesus did actually have children, wouldn't they have been born of his bloodline and provide an alternative means of salvation? But Paul wrote to Timothy and said, For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. There is only one mediator between man and God, and he had to be trialled and murdered. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. By being murdered, Jesus was legally able to give man the opportunity to come out from under Satan's dominion. If we read from Genesis, some of the older laws, whoever sheds human blood, by humans their blood shall be shed. And from Leviticus, if a man kills anyone, he must be put to death. Jesus was an innocent man put to death. The one who arranged, trumped up the charges for death, was guilty of murder. A murderer under the law lost his inheritance, lost his rights, and had to be put to death. We shared before that the wages of sin is death. Jesus had not sinned, and therefore there was no legal claim for him to pay the wage for sin. Death could not hold him down. Death had lost its sting. As an example, I heard a story that when Satan killed Jesus, it was like a boxing match. Satan had knocked Jesus out and killed him and thought he was one, thought he'd won and celebrating. But he was shocked when the referee, who was God, didn't start counting to ten. One, two. No, he started, started counting down from ten. Nine, eight, because his death was the first part of the victory. Remember God's curse on the serpent. You shall strike his heel and he shall crush your head. So what does it mean for us? Jesus explained to the disciples that he had to suffer and die. And we read in John, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. There are a few reasons. Man had sinned and that no man born of Adam's line was able to break free of the sin because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God allowed his son to be conceived, born of a woman, holy man and holy God in that miraculous conception. And when Jesus was born, he had a new bloodline Jesus had to live a life without sin and he had to suffer and die. He had to effectively be murdered. And through murdering of an innocent man, Satan is a criminal. 
a murderer, guilty of death and has no legal status over us. The transaction is complete. Jesus has legally met the conditions required for man to once again enter into God's presence. No one is forced to follow Jesus. Our choice is to accept or reject what he did for us on the cross through his death and resurrection. Satan no longer has any authority over us and God treats everyone justly. Everyone will receive the punishment that they are due man and Satan. But for those who believe in the Son, the wages owing for sin has been paid and we have been forgiven. There is only one who is worthy. There is only one name by which we can be saved. Amen. Let's just pray. Lord, we just thank you that you sent your Son that he came, lived the life on this earth, and that he died, and that he rose again. And that by believing in him, we can spend eternity with you. We thank you for your design and your plan, not only for your son, but for each of our own lives. We pray that we can be worthy to carry your name. In Christ's name, amen.